0: What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? What's stopping you? I think
1: the Pope has too much authority.
0: What's stopping you?
1: You, 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 you? you are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Those of you who have questions about the Catholic faith, Maybe you've been asking friends or co-workers about the Catholic faith, and they don't have a, a satisfying answer as to what the Catholic Church actually teaches. We are here to help. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 and if you're watching us on TV today, the best way to contact the show for you is our email address, ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener, Rich Jesse handling uh, social media today. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming there right now. All you have to do is put your uh, comments, your question in the comments box. And then uh, Rich will see that. He'll send it to us here in the studio, and uh, off we go. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Well, I'm very good. I think you can actually take a breath here. It's okay.
2: Yeah, so I I, I take the interstate from my day job to EWTN for the the program. Yes. And today I got on the interstate, and there's a a place where you get off of one interstate onto another one, and they had it completely blocked off, shut down fire trucks, police cars, the whole nine yards. So they shunted me, you know, a couple miles out
1: of the way and sure. made it in today with, I think, what did you say? I had 14 oh, seconds four, left 14 on the clock. 14 seconds. Yes, exactly. So, so, you know, this is live broadcasting. Who needs coffee? That's, that's the way we look at it. Well, we're going to lead you off with a very interesting question here. This is an anonymous question. This person says, I have a relative in the Philippines who is a member of a local Church of God International, MCGI. It's an anti-Catholic Bible alone and Protestant denomination that claims the Catholic Church was involved in the destruction of Israel and the Temple in 70 AD. Also, he claimed that at the same time, the Roman Empire started to teach Catholicism, and that anyone who refused to kneel before the cross would be beheaded. Do you have any comments about this?
2: Yeah, this is this is really gross historical ignorance. Mm, yeah, because when the, the when the temple was destroyed in seventy A.D., the Gospels had not been written. Mm. The Gospels had not been written. Okay, and and so the the. Well, the Catholic Church as such existed from the ascension of Christ. I mean, Jesus is the one that established the Church. So we, we, we have apostolic authority and Petrine succession, and we have the sacraments mm-hmm. uh, from a very early age. The idea that the early Christian community exercised any kind of political authority uh, in 70 AD is is just patently absurd. I mean, the the, the Church was... First of all, the Romans had barely even noticed the existence of Christianity by 70 A.D. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and of course, when they finally did show up on the on the Romans' radar, they were they were subject to persecution. So the yeah. idea that the that, that Christians or Catholics uh, somehow exercised political or military power in 70 A.D. is just is insane. I mean, that is absolutely not. Yeah. Um, uh, did Christianity and Catholicism specifically become the official religion of the Roman Empire in the late 4th century? The answer to that question is yes. Um, I'm I'm not personally aware of beheading as the penalty for for noncompliance. But uh, but yeah, it did become the official religion of the Roman Empire.
1: And what of it? Yeah. Okay. And uh, we thank you so much for your question. Here is a fascinating question we received in an email. This came from Jane. So David, if you had 30 seconds in an elevator with someone... How would you summarize the Catholic Church's rules of faith?
2: Um, yeah, so I, I think if I had 30 seconds to summarize the rule of faith, I mean, you, 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 could, you could do a lot worse than, than reciting the Apostles' Creed of the Nicene Creed. Ah. I believe in God, Jesus Christ's only Son, who was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, was buried, descended to hell, rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, established the Church— communion of saints,
1: et cetera, cetera. T- all that, sins, all, all that, that good
2: stuff. You know, boom, there you go. And that, that's, that's exactly what the creed is meant to do. It's supposed to be the summary. It's the sum of the Christian faith.
1: Very good. Jane, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Shannon watching us on YouTube. Is there a good resource I can share with those new to the Catholic faith? Like uh, a baby Catholic. <laughs> yeah, how about EWTN? Yeah. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think EWTN is one of the greatest catechetical resources for people learning about Catholicism. Even, even I, when I was on my way into the Catholic faith, I, I discovered Catholicism through reading church history and reading the church fathers. But, uh, but it didn't make me Catholic. It made me amenable to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I discovered EWTN Radio, oh, you know, twenty years ago, and and that was the first time I'd ever interacted with real, living, breathing Catholics. All the ones I knew before that were dead. <laughs> right? So E.W. 10 was my introduction to living, breathing Catholicism, and it was an important thing for my own transition to the Catholic faith.
1: There you go, Shannon. Thanks so much for watching us on YouTube. One more here before the break. This is an email from Randy. I wonder why Protestants abandoned the use of the sign of the cross as a prayer that precedes further prayers. Was it just a bias against all things Catholic? I think so.
2: Yeah, and there are Protestants who use the sign of the cross, and those that are more amenable to sacramental, liturgical, symbolical forms. Of worship and prayer, are more amenable to the sign of the cross. But yeah, I, I think there was a kind of antipathy towards um, uh, towards symbol and towards any and ritual and anything that smacks of Catholicism. I know when I was running around in evangelical Protestant circles years ago, you know, Protestants will debate different ways of interpreting biblical texts. For example, there'd be a range of opinions on something. And uh, sometimes someone would come up with an idea, and and everybody else in the room would say, well, yeah, that's interesting, but we can't go there because that's the Catholic view. Like, mm. just in
1: virtue of being Catholic, really? that was
2: enough to rule it out of consideration.
1: Yeah. Wow, sad. Well, there it is. And uh, Randy, thanks so much uh, for your email. Again, if you uh, are... Uh watching us on TV today and you would like to communicate with the show, we'd love to hear from you. Our address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to answer a couple of emails on each of our live broadcasts. And then uh, once a month or so, we'll do a mailbag program, take care of a whole bunch of emails for uh, for everybody. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones, though, and we'll be talking with Ricky in Bellevue, Nebraska, also Dion in Sioux City, Iowa, William in uh, Concord, New Hampshire. A couple lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you're ready now, it's go to the phones at 833 288 EWTN. We begin with uh, Ricky in Bellevue, Nebraska, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey, Ricky, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, guys. Thank you.
0: Uh, thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Um, so Dr. Andrews, I just missed you. You were in Omaha last week, I think. Oh, yeah. My mother got the chance to go and go and see, listen to your talk. I wasn't able to. I was kind of bummed. But um, so, my question today is: um, I've been doing a lot of study and research on the idea of the intercession of the saints, um, and reading historical prayers from people like um, Ephraim the Syrian and and and, and others of that. Um, very, very good and beautiful prayers that you know, as a non-Catholic, I can I can definitely see and get behind. But then I, I stumble upon things like the um, Our Lady of Perpetual Health, and I read certain aspects of this prayer that I just, I really struggle with, and I'm really trying to understand. Um, for instance, there's one particular line where it says, uh, uh, "...in my hand I place my eternal salvation, and entrust thee my soul. For if thou protect me, I fear nothing, not from my sins, because that will obtain for me pardon from them, nor from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all else together." nor even from Jesus my judge, because by one prayer from me he will be appeased. Now, Dr. Adams, I'm really trying to understand here, but it seems like at first blush reading this prayer, it's like Jesus my Savior, he has to be appeased by his mother, and I, I struggle with that because it seems like I can't actually go to him uh, in, in, in comfort knowing that he will receive me with open arms, kind of like you know the, 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 the prodigal son the father runs after. It just seems like he's, he's now become my judge that Mary has to appease for me. Yeah, does that, does totally,
2: yeah, absolutely. I totally understand the perspective that you're taking. I, I kind of share your discomfort. And and the first thing I'd like to say is that uh, you, you don't derive theology in the Catholic tradition from devotions. Devotions are very secondary to to what it is that Catholics believe and, and practice and do. We, mm-hmm. we derive our dogma from the dogmas of the Church and from divine revelation. And so just because some Catholic has pen-day prayer someplace, even one that becomes popular, um, you, don't, you don't derive your Mariology from that, from that prayer. And there are lots of different kinds of Marian devotion in Catholic history, and they express different theologies of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And this is something that's, that's odd for a Protestant to wrap his head around, because in Protestantism, if you hold a theological position of any kind on any question— you just presume that your position is the normative position and that people who don't hold it are fundamentally wrong and they need to be corrected, right? And, and the idea is, in Protestantism, the Bi- God gave us the Bible as a rule of faith. The Bible is sufficient and clear. And if I read the Bible and I come up with a clear, coherent understanding of what I think it says on a particular topic, then if I'm persuaded that that's what Scripture says— then that's just the truth, and I'm obligated to hold it. And in someone who doesn't hold this opinion is just fundamentally wrong. And they've exegeted the text the wrong way. <coughs> okay, so e- even though you do have theological diversity within Protestantism, the diversity itself is, uh, you know, it's it's like it's not like these are two legitimate ways of relating to God. It's, it's One is the right way and one's the wrong way, and we might differ over how severe the difference, of how, how severe the consequences are, but mm-hmm. one's just wrong. Like So take, for example, the Pentecostal position that, that speaking in tongues is normative for Christian life. Well, the Pentecostal thinks that the person who doesn't speak in tongues doesn't have a an equally legitimate claim on Christian spirituality. They think they think they're saved, but they think, like, you're really missing out on something that's absolutely essential, because this is what Scripture says to me, this is what I think the conclusion is. Catholicism works in an entirely different fashion with regard to doctrinal claims. So, there are dogmas of the faith that all Catholics have to hold, all right? Beyond that, there is a, a, a legitimate variety of theological opinion. And it's, it is perfectly conceivable within a Catholic framework for two different people to hold incommensurate, incompatible ideas mm-hmm. um, and for the Catholic Church to say, they're both kosher. You, you can hold either one of these opinions. Um, neither one of you is deficient with respect to your Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and neither one of those is normative because they're not at the level of a dogma, right? And it's because dogma in the Catholic tradition is not based on the private exegesis of a text, Right. right? All that is to say, whether it comes to, to our, our Marian doctrine or anything else, there are a variety of theological opinions that are allowable within Catholicism, right? And the the particular prayer that you have, that you've read, lays out like a theological perspective on the Blessed Virgin Mary and her relationship to Jesus, but it's not the normative one. and And that wouldn't be the way that say a lot of eastern catholics would relate to their own devotion to the blessed virgin mary mm-hmm. the second point i would want to make is that devotional prayer in general right is more in the genre of love poetry than it is theology mm. right and so you know we um, we have a prayer in the catholic tradition to mary where you know she's our light our sweetness and our hope yes you know and, and sometimes Protestants encounter that, and they're like, well, that, that's just terrible. Isn't Jesus our light, our sweetness, and our hope? And what they're missing is that when the Catholic says this to the Blessed Virgin, then it, you should hear it the way—think of a medieval troubadour um, serenading— you know made Marion or whoever you know yeah. on, the, on the on the balcony of the medieval castle and her her the train of her hair is probably like six feet long or something <laughs> you know he's gonna say all kinds of things that are not literally true you know you are my heart you are my light you are the sun in my eyes you know you're more beautiful than the sky whatever it is you know yeah and it's love poetry sure and and that's also how devotion works so it's just it's just you just can't start where you're starting and go, this is the Catholic position. No, it, it doesn't work that way. Okay. What is the Catholic position on our relationship to Christ and Blessed Virgin Mary and the nature of our salvation? Well, th- th- here's the dogma. We're saved through Christ's mediation. We're saved through Christ's incarnation. And we're saved ultimately by con- being conformed to the likeness and image of Jesus. All right, so we're, we're baptized into Christ. We're not baptized into Mary. Right? We commune on Christ's body and blood. We don't commune on Mary's body and blood. Uh, you know, we're we're confirmed in the Spirit of Christ, not the Spirit of Mary. And uh, and ultimately, we're saved uh, because we, we come to image Christ's likeness, n- not because we image Mary except insofar as she images Christ. And, and that's the way that all the saints benefit us. The saints benefit us because, you know, St. Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, following Paul is a great thing to do if it helps me become more like Christ. And th- that's why we think following Mary is a great thing to do, only insofar as she helps us to become more like Christ. So I don't want to follow Mary insofar as she's a, a peasant virgin from first-century Galilee. I want to follow the Blessed Virgin Mary insofar as she says, um, uh, be it done to me according to thy word. Ah, uh, yes. Right? It's not the particularities, the historical accidents of her personality, that are salvific to me, but it's in her holiness that is entirely a work of Christ's grace within her. That's the way in which Mary helps me. Um, uh, is in, insofar as relating to Christ as a judge, for whom we need or from whom we need Mary's protection. Uh, I agree with you that that way of conceiving of relationship to Christ seems to me to be a bit off balance. Mm-hmm. Now, is Christ a judge? Unambiguously. I mean, this is absolutely the teaching of Scripture and of Saint Paul and. Paul makes it very clear that when Christ comes back, he's going to give what for to people for whatever they've done, good or bad, and that includes believers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the prayers of the saints, the intercessions of the saints, the merits of the saints can help prepare us for that day of judgment by aiding us in our life of holiness. Um, you could sort of poetically construe that in the terms that this prayer has done, but you, you, you always compare the devotion— to the dogma. You don't read the dogma in light of the devotion. Okay.
1: Ricky, is that helpful for you?
0: Yes. Yes, it is. So could I, Dr. Anders, I don't mean to put you on the spot here. Could I still be Catholic and reject this prayer?
2: You can be Catholic and not pray the prayer. Like, you, you, here's what you can't do. You can't become Catholic and say, no one should pray this prayer. And I, I, Ricky, declare that the prayer is off limits, and no Catholic should ever pray it. All right. However, if you become Catholic and you and, and you're in a prayer group and somebody says, "Hey, I'm going to pray this prayer," uh, you don't you don't have to. The, the only prayer you have to pray in the Catholic tradition is the Mass. You you have to participate in Holy Mass, and you should pray the Lord's Prayer that our that our Lord gave us. Yeah. And you should have you should have some form of devotion to the Blessed Virgin and the Saints, but the Church doesn't specify exactly what that form has to take, just that there has to be one. You, you have to acknowledge that the saints are intercessors, and that through their merits and prayers and holiness, we come to holiness. Uh, and some kind of incorporation of that into your spirituality is necessary, but it certainly doesn't have to be this or that Marianne devotion.
1: Ricky, thanks so much for your call. Great way to kick off the show. That uh, opens up a line for you right now at 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, maybe you'd like to explain what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833-288-3986. Again, if you're watching us on TV today, uh, please shoot us an email with that question and the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. All right, let's go to uh, William, a first-time caller in Concord, New Hampshire, listening on The Great Hope FM. Uh, William, what's on your mind today, sir?
0: Right, so my question is, it's been explained to me that people who are not Catholic can go to heaven because of the, the Scripture passage in Matthew that separates the sheep from the goats at the end of time. So if, if we can do the, the works of Christ, namely visit the sick and clothe the uh, naked and bury the dead and so forth, and that's what we need to do to get to heaven, then why do we have to bother with all the prayers, with, the sacraments, the Church, and so forth. That's my question.
2: Yeah, it's a great Thanks. question. St. Augustine addresses this in his uh, book on christian Doctrine, and he makes a pretty arresting claim. He says we should treat the entire dispensation of our faith, the whole thing, as a, uh, we should regard it as a road or a chariot. Some, in other words, as a means to an end. Okay. What is the end? The end is the perfect love of God and neighbor. Yeah. And so the function of all the accoutrements of Catholic life, the magisterium, the doctrines of the faith, the prayers, the rituals, the sacraments, um, ascetic- ascetical practices, you name it, all of it, the whole kit and caboodle is there to aid us in the acquisition of the love of God and neighbor. It's a means to an end. The sacraments are a means to an end. They're not the end in the self. Now, the, the, to, to, to suggest that, well, you know, that's, it's just a lot easier to go feed the hungry than it is to do all the Catholic stuff— I think is to misjudge the, the, um, the extent of the holiness that we are meant to practice, right? Because Christ himself makes it clear. Look, if you go feed the hungry, clothe the naked, pray in street corners, and give alms to be seen by men, you have your reward in full. What we're aiming for is not just the mechanical repetition of an act, but the transformation of a heart, right? Uh, the, the acquiring a new form of vision to come to see the world through Christ's eyes. Mm-hmm. And so the the sacraments, specifically, are there um, as efficacious signs. They're symbols that work uh, to effect a radical transformation of our personalities so that we genuinely become new people in the world. And and that's not so easy to do. I cannot bootstrap my way into a transformation of personality. I cannot, by willpower alone, uh, cause myself to to be reborn, to become a fundamentally different kind of person. Um, now that can happen by God's grace through extra sacramental means, but the sacraments are the quick and easy way, the manifest way, the public way, the way given to us by Christ for the most efficacious way uh, to be born again and to ultimately grow into Christ's image and likeness, so that we genuinely love God and neighbor from the heart, because our whole vision, our whole, tr- our whole personality has been transformed in Christ.
1: William, thank you for your call. It is uh, called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at eight three three. 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. David is watching us on YouTube today. A rather thoughtful question here. David says, how did people know of and believe in God before the canon was uh, canonized, if you will? How did God reveal himself, and how did God, as it were, become God to people? Oh, sure. So
2: the, the Catholic perspective on this, of course, is that God can be known through the things that have been made. St. You know, Paul says that explicitly in Romans 1. The Book of Wisdom says that. Uh, and so to know that there is a first cause, to know that there is a first principle from which all things derive, is something that Aristotle knew. It's something that Plato knew. People mm-hmm. who lived, you know, centuries before the incarnation of Christ and had no knowledge of the Christian scriptures knew that there was a God. Um, and uh, uh, now, you know, the history of religions shows us that there's been you know, profound evolution in the concept of god through the centuries but tending to a more refined more ethereal more immaterial more unitary concept so you know from a kind of animism where god is imminent in reindeer and tree stumps and rocks on the side of the road uh, to an utterly transcendent and ineffable god that's that seems to be the the trend in the history of religions and the 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 unique christian claim is that that god became incarnate in the person of jesus christ And, uh, you know, St. John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Because the thing about that, that uh, that ineffable and transcendent God, is that he's unknowable in himself. We can infer that, that such a God exists, but of his essence we can know nothing. And of his will for us, we can know very little. And so the revelation of Christ reveals that God is not only existent, but that God is love. And that God has personal care and solicitude for the human race and provided a way of salvation.
1: All right, and uh, David, thank you so much for watching us on YouTube today. If you are watching us on YouTube today or Facebook and you've got a question, you can certainly put that question of yours in the comments box. It'll come to us here at the network uh, very quickly. And then uh, Rich will uh, take a look at that. He'll pass it on to us, um, you know, a little a little copy paste, as it were, and uh, we'll hopefully get that question answered on today's program. Meanwhile, uh, phones are open for you at eight three three. 288-EWTN. If you'd like to call us, 833-288-3986. In a moment, we'll be talking with David in Oklahoma City. Also, Linda, a first-time caller in Chicago. Again, that number 833-288-EWTN. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. 833-288-3986. Here now, Linda, a first-time caller in Chicago, listening on WSFI. Linda, what's on your mind today?
0: Hello, good afternoon. Um, I'm just, I guess I'm a bit unsure of uh, why the catholic church and god uh is approving of uh natural f- family planning uh uh like to me it uh like choosing uh, uh when to refrain uh uh is like i i'm perceiving it as my will be done not thy will be done
2: yeah thanks i really appreciate the question so um the catholic position is those that that use a rational method of spacing the birth of their children a legitimate reason um, the only, the only the only acceptable way to do that is through is through abstinence right and so there's no it's not immoral to not have sexual relations it, it is immoral to uh, to unilaterally withhold sexual relations uh, against the will of your spouse without a really good and proportionate reason um, you're supposed to have conjugal union with your spouse but you're not required to have conjugal union with your spouse every day. Right, it it it, it 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 it's a remedy for concupiscence, and the intent to bear children is, uh, is uh, obligatory, but not not the, the constant use of the faculty, right? Yeah, no, yeah. And uh, and so because the this method of spacing births, it precisely involves rational restraint, it's av- uh, it's it's absolutely in accord with the spirit of Catholic asceticism and and uh, uh, and the moral life. So that that would be why, right? And you know, th- that I can exercise some kind of choice over my conduct of life, my mm. way of life, it doesn't violate the principle of thy will be done, dear God. I mean, I, you know, I, I choose what to eat for dinner every night. You know, I don't, just, I don't just eat what drops from the sky. I mean, I make all kinds of—we all do. We, we choose what to do for a living, what, sure. what, what to study in school. I mean, it's it's okay to make choices about one's life. Uh, I think the spirit of the Lord's Prayer, or the spirit of, the, of our, our Lord's Prayer in the Garden, is when, say, suffering or hardship comes our way, um, you know, we that's beyond our control. We
1: accept what providence gives us because we trust in the goodness of God. There it is. Linda, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Call to Communion here on EWTN. We go to Oklahoma City now, and David, listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Hello, David. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello, thank you for taking my call. I uh, wanted to know, what is a Monsignor, and why has the Church slowed, if not stopped, in raising priests to that station? And also, why are some priests referred to as reverend, and others referred to as very or most reverend?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, Monsignor uh, is an honorary title that is no longer conferred in the Church, but it was for a long time. Mm -hmm. Typically on parish priests that have... uh, had long and, and, and successful ministries and well-regarded by their bishops, uh, by their peers. Mm-hmm. And a bishop would often appeal to the Holy See for the right to confer the title of monsignor on some uh, elder bishop in his, uh, in his diocese. And we've got a few monsignors running around in my diocese. And, yes. But, uh, but they're grandfathered in, and we're not going to get any more. if Pope Francis says he doesn't want to grant any more monsignors. In terms of the, the various titles, uh, as you may have noticed— Roman Catholicism is a hierarchic religion, and there is a there are extensive levels within that hierarchy, and these titles indicate uh, different ladders up the ascent, if you will. So mm-hmm. reverend is a title for the pastor of a parish. Uh, most reverend is, excuse me, very reverend, is assigned to, say, the dean of a deanery, oh. someone who has a higher position within the diocese uh-huh. but isn't the bishop. Most reverend is reserved for bishops. Uh, bishops can also be addressed as excellency or your excellency. Cardinals are are uh, um, your eminence, or yes, eminence, yes, right? Yes, um And then, of course, we have the Holy Father
1: at the top of the hierarchy. There it is. Uh, David, thanks. Uh, that's a very good question, I actually. Appreciate your call from Oklahoma City. All right, James is watching us on YouTube today. James says, Lately, a conservative Catholic commentator justified his pro-death penalty position by suggesting that the Catechism has errors, which makes the Catechism, paragraph 2267, Up for debate. Is this a legitimate argument?
2: Okay, thanks. So I think that this is a false dichotomy. I think the thing has been has been put badly, so... uh, and a lot of ink has been spilled on the interpretation of the Catechism Paragraph 2267, so I'm gonna give you my take on it, but I'm just a private person, so you're welcome to disagree with me, and some other Catholic person of greater authority can come by and hammer me in the head. That's fine, okay? (laughs) So my understanding of the doctrine of the death penalty in the Catholic Church, I I believe the Church has has taught infallibly that the death penalty is, in principle, licit. It's not, in principle, immoral to conduct the death penalty. And, in fact, the Vatican, the Pope's own city-state, had the death penalty on its statutes as a legitimate civil punishment into the 1960s. Really? You could be executed in the Vatican. Wow. In right? the twentieth century, has known. I mean, there have been Vatican executioners whose job was to pull the lever. Right. Yee. So, I mean, that's that's been part of the Pope doesn't pull the lever, but he had a guy working for him that okay. pulled the lever. If you All committed right. a crime on papal property, right? And it's it's a it's a very long-standing tradition, and uh, we have instances in church history where, say, uh, the reconciliation of the Albigensians in the in the thirteenth century, they were required by the Pope to admit the legitimacy of the death penalty as a condition for admission to the Catholic Church, hmm. right? And I could name many other examples as well. So when it comes to the ordinary magisterial teaching of the Church, the Church's universal teaching and practice for 2,000 years uh-huh. right, has always been to admit, in principle, the legitimacy of the death penalty. Now, during the pontificate of John Paul II, in, uh, in his encyclical on the Gospel of Life, John Paul floated the idea that given... The resources available to modern jurisprudence and, uh, and 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 the penal system yeah. that it was potentially more in accord with human dignity uh, to limit or eliminate the use of the death penalty that that was uh, that that was a preferable option and the congregation of the doctrine of the faith addressed specifically the question is a Catholic bound to hold the Pope's opinion as a condition of Catholic unity. And Cardinal Ratzinger, who was the prefect of the congregation and later became pope, concluded that it is not an issue of Catholic unity. In other words, a person could disagree Mm -hmm. with John Paul's prudential judgment about the death penalty and still remain in communion with the Catholic Church. Okay? Now, the way I read paragraph 2267 of the Catechism is that uh, Pope Francis has, as it were, doubled down on John Paul's position— and said he, and it uses the term, the death penalty is inadmissible. Now, inadmissible is uh, not a very specific word, no. right? It, it's got pretty wide latitude. And as my mother used to say, you can kind of drive a truck through inadmissible, <laughs> right? And, uh, and and so here's here's how I read it. And and look, you can disagree with me, and I'm sure, I know there are Catholics who do disagree with me. the, the Pope is the public spokesperson for the Catholic faith. And the Pope is the person who articulates how Catholic faith and dogma are to be applied prudentially uh, in the modern world, in the conduct of of human life and and civil policy and things of that sort. And the Pope is of the opinion that it is a really bad idea to pursue the death penalty in uh, in the public sphere, for all the reasons that John Paul uh, enunciated. And I would have to say that I see the logic of the Pope's opinion in that— What would happen in the world if suddenly the Pope came out and was a a vocal proponent of the death penalty? What would that do to civil society? Who would it benefit? Who would it hurt? And it seems to me that all of the tyrannical, despotic regimes in the world would stand up and cheer. And we all know who the bad actors are. And it would not contribute... That, that promotion would not contribute to the common good, uh, to the salvation of souls, to, um, uh, to uh, a legitimate deterrent for crime, and certainly not to respect for human rights and human dignity, yeah. right? And so I see the sense of the Pope's position. Where I think you cannot go is you can't, you can't read paragraph 2267 and conclude that the death penalty is, is intrinsically immoral. Because to do so, it seems to me, would be to set the Church up in a historical contradiction, mm. to, to be absolutely forbidding
1: something that it had absolutely allowed for centuries. Yeah. James, thanks so much for check, checking us out today on YouTube. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have a couple of lines open for you if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 want to uh, talk for just a moment here about a wonderful program we have cooked up for you each and every weekend on EWTN Radio. It's the Catholic Cafe, hosted by Deacon Jeff Drzezinski. It's a great show, especially for all you guys. Uh, it's a, a conversation, a candid talk with men. are right there in the Catholic Cafe with Deacon Jeff, all about how to share experiences and strengthen your faith and be better husbands and better fathers. So if that resonates with you, you'll want to check out the Catholic Cafe every Sunday morning, 1030 a.m. Eastern, exclusively on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Matt watching us on YouTube today. Matt says, I've been a Catholic for five months now. My parish has about 2,000 families, but only 15 people in RCIA. At my former Protestant church, we grew by 15% per year. Am I crazy to expect the same at my parish?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So let me put your 15% number in context, because I I read a good bit of of sociology and demographics about Christianity in North America, and I have a fairly decent idea of what's going on. Um, The... All segments of Christianity in North America are diminishing, with a couple of exceptions. Um, Evangelical Protestantism has managed to hold pretty much flat, right, with other segments have gone down. Evangelical Protestantism has managed to hold flat. But within Evangelical Protestantism, there is enormous switching. And the traffic has gone this way. Mm. Um, the, the average congregation size, or that's just the median con- congregation size, has gone down significantly. It's like halved over the last decade or uh-huh. two decades. Um, and the percentage of Protestants that now attend megachurches, you know, churches that have, say, more than three or 4,000 people, yeah, yeah. has ballooned so that the most North American Protestants now actually attend megachurches that represent— Uh, in terms of the number of churches, a small number of the overall number of Protestant churches. So probably, and uh, the 15% growth rate, maybe not in your congregation, but very many of them, those kind of growth rates don't mean 15% uh, growth rate of pagans becoming Christians. They are of Christians moving from one style of Christianity to another within the world of evangelical Protestantism, kind right? of a lateral move. Yeah, a lateral move in that sense. Yeah. Okay. And 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 so it it is, it has a lot to do really with with style of worship, uh, mm-hmm. basically marketing techniques. I mean, the, the the advent of the what's called the seeker friendly church mm. is very much, uh, and I'm not I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just mm-hmm. describing it. Sure. Uh, the determination to apply modern business methods and marketing to the marketing of churches and, and you, you and, and there's a, a model of church governance that aims at growth at any cost. That's kind of our, we're motivated by growth, growth is what we're for, right? Um, and, uh, but it doesn't mean that, say evangelical Protestantism is growing by 15% a year. it's not, at least not in North America. okay? Now Catholicism is is shrinking in North America. Uh, and one of the things that's shoring it up is the heavy influx of Hispanic Catholics from Latin America, right? So, yes. um, I mean, my own diocese has seen uh, about a 25% growth rate overall in the last 10 years. Wow. Um, and uh, a tremendous amount of that is attributable to uh, Hispanic immigration. Actually, if you look at the Kennedy Report, it's uh, it can all be attributed to baptisms and marriages, but I bet if you dug into those baptisms and marriages, you'd find a lot of Rodriguez's and Garcia's in the numbers, right? Okay. You know? and, uh, and just when we look at mass attendance, you know, we were about 30% Hispanic in our diocese now when, 20 years ago, I, it would have been, you know, just a fraction of that number. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, there so there are areas of growth within the Catholic community, but a lot of it has to do with demographics, which is kind of analogous to what we see within Protestantism in that there's a lot of demographic shifting. Um, would we like to see a 15% growth rate from uh, catechumens, from people who have practiced no Christianity and they've learned about Catholicism and boom, there they are. We're sure we would love to see that yeah. growth rate. okay? Um, Catholics have not traditionally invested nearly as much in the active recruitment of outsiders, right? I mean, we, we're all about evangelization. We are not about proselytism. and we, we don't typically evaluate our successes in terms of how many new converts do we have. Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, that's not the way Catholics typically do business. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, do we need to do more evangelization? Absolutely. You know, I mean, and, and when I became Catholic, I knocked on the door of my parish priest and I said, I want to become Catholic. And he said, well, are you marrying a Catholic, or did you read your way in? <laughs> and those are the options. And I said, well, I read my way in. And it always struck me that what he didn't say was, well, obviously the Wednesday night evangelism group must have come and knocked on your door. why was was i not surprised that he didn't say that because there was no wednesday night evangelism group right and so you you sort of
1: get what you pay for in the catholic church sure hope that's uh, helpful for you matt thanks for watching us today on youtube call to communion here on ewtn you mentioned uh weddings a moment ago here's a question from jane who says we attended an outdoor mass at a pilgrimage a few weeks ago and it sparked a conversation about outdoor weddings our family's understanding is that Catholic weddings should only be done in a church. Is that true? And if so, how is an outdoor Mass at other times valid?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, you can have an outdoor Catholic wedding, but you're primarily supposed to have them in churches, and when you depart from that model, you need to get the permission of the bishop to do so. And uh, the reason that you should have your wedding in a church and ideally have it associated with the Mass is because a Catholic marriage is a sacrament— if you have two baptized people, it's a sacrament. Yeah. And thus, it is very closely allied to the rest of the Catholic sacramental system. And the the graces to live sacramental marriage worthily are derived not only from the sacrament itself, but from one's ongoing participation in, in the Mass and, and confession and the life of prayer in the Christian community. And so it is very important for couples and their families to know that, Uh, to be made aware by the sanctity of the right that they're entering into an ecclesial state. You know, uh, nobody is going to make the mistake of thinking that ordination to the priesthood is, uh, you know, the equivalent of saying taking an accounting degree and a job at one of the, you know, big accounting (laughs) firms, right? It's not just a job choice. It is a a state of life within the Church and a sacred duty. You would never ordain somebody, um, you know, at the top of the Space Mountain ride at, at Disney World. Right? No. It would be totally inappropriate. And in the same way, marriage for a Catholic is just as much an ecclesial state of life as ordination is. And so no more would you want to get married at the top of Space Mountain in Disney World than, than, than to be married in a Catholic Church. Why can you have a Mass outside the Church? Well, nobody is in danger of thinking that the Mass is somehow a secular rite right? I mean, it's the Mass that hallows the Church. Sure. The, 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 the Church is not holy because it's made in a certain shape.
1: It's holy because of what it contains, and that's the altar and the Blessed Sacrament and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Jane, we appreciate your email, and again, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, I'd love to get it. The address is ctc.ewtn.com. CTC at EWTN.com. Here's one of those emails. This one came in from Rodney. Could you please explain a little about grace and what Catholics believe versus Protestants, what they believe?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So, Catholics believe that grace is a participation in the divine nature. St. Peter says that by the promises of Christ, we become participants in the divine nature. That's what grace is uh, it's, it is a power that transforms us. Restores us to the likeness and image of God, remakes us in the likeness likeness and image of Christ, imprints His divine personality upon ours, and with that infusion of grace into our life comes the forgiveness of sins, uh, as well as this as this transformation of the person uh, that includes this infusion of the life of virtue and and uh, and uh, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So that's that's what grace is to us in life. Protestants. Uh, often and look, and he, you can't generalize about all Protestants. So I'll say this, and some Protestant will write me and go, "That's not what I mean by grace." But there's always an <laughs> exception. But sure. th- historically, Protestants mean by grace unmerited divine favor, unmerited divine favor. And so, for Protestants, the, the the real paradigmatic element of grace is the the unconditioned free forgiveness of sins and the imputation, not the infusion, of Christ's righteousness. Meaning that the soul is accounted righteous for Christ's sake, regardless of the actual intrinsic merit or worth of that individual, right? And so uh, while Protestants do think that the Holy Spirit regenerates the soul and can affect a growth in holiness, um, that's, that's sort of a secondary effect, and it's not what's determinative for the question of salvation. For Protestants, the real cr- critical aspect is that grace is God accepts me for Jesus' sake, unmerited
1: divine favor. All right. And uh, Rodney, thanks so much uh, for your email. Let's go to a call that we received overnight on the EWTN listener comment line.
0: This is Melissa from Dallas, Texas. Why does the devil go after small people like me? I'm piddling. Why doesn't he go after the president of the United States or Elon Musk or somebody like that?
2: Uh, sure. So I appreciate the question. Um, you know, without naming names, I don't want to be, <laughs> be understood as having suggested that some particular public personage is under is under acute uh, diabolic scrutiny. I don't want to be accused of saying that. The Catholic position is that the devil and the fallen angels are, of course, active uh, to tempt everybody. Right. So yeah. you know, you're not you're not singled out because you're a small person or a great person or however you might construe it.
1: Okay. Appreciate that. Here's one from J.C. Dr. Anders, I'm getting ready to lead an OCIA class, or RCIA, if you will. In the book of Acts, we read that people were hearing the gospel message, repenting, and being baptized, at which time apparently they were fully incorporated into the body of Christ. So... Why is the process for becoming a Catholic these days such a long process? Why can't people just join quickly like they do in other churches? After all, our whole life will be learning. Why are you so complicated, and at what point in history did it become a more intense process? Thanks a million, JC.
2: Yeah, thanks. Uh, the, the, The procedure for receiving catechumens into the church was intense, as you put it, from a very early stage. And it was different from the modern way in one respect. We tend to front-load doctrinal instruction. So you go through RCA, and you learn about the Trinity and the Incarnation and the nature of the Eucharist, and you learn all this doctrine, Mm -hmm. and then you you enter into the Church. What they would do in antiquity is they would have an extended period before baptism of instruction, but the instruction focused primarily on the reformation of your moral life. Hmm. And so you had to make some pretty stringent commitments to how you were going to live and things that you had to get away from. And then when you, you were vouched for that you were really intent on living a worthy life, you'd be baptized and confirmed and received Holy Communion. And then you would undergo what was called mystagogy, where you were, where the mysteries of the faith, the secrets of the faith, particularly the sacraments, were unveiled to you. And so there was, there was instruction before and after and the reason for the instruction is that uh, the Catholic way of life is a way of life. It is a way of life. And you, 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 when you become Catholic, you are taking on uh, a significant alteration, probably, to how you are in the world. And uh, that's a big commitment. And, and, you know, Jesus says, and, and, the, and the epistles say, uh, St. Peter says in 2 Peter, better not to have entered the way of righteousness than to enter and then turn back. Mm-hmm so you had you and jesus tells the parable of the guy who starts to build the tower and he didn't have enough money to complete it and his uh, his enemies ridicule him The meaning being don't set out on the path if you can't complete what you started sure and so it is a big commitment
1: all right appreciate that uh, thanks so much for all of your questions we have one that just came in here from ryan watching us on youtube today ryan says i'm struggling to understand how to apply catholic moral thought to stock investing and is it acceptable to invest in a gambling company okay thanks so what the church
2: teaches on uh, uh, being engaged in intrinsically immoral behavior is that you cannot will the immoral outcome hmm. right so if uh, uh, you know if there's a company that that is determined to make money by a, an expressly immoral means um, I, I can't want for that means to take place Right, That I'm formally cooperating, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. I can, however, um, be involved in a remote way, not approximate way, uh, if I don't intend that evil outcome. So, um, you know, I personally don't uh, invest in gambling companies, and gambling as such is not regarded as immoral in the Catholic tradition. Um, I, my own personal choice is not to invest in gambling companies, because I, I think that the modern gambling industry really intentionally preys upon addiction, and and uh, you know can have really devastating effects on family life. But gambling as such is not immoral. But that's a personal choice to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know there are there are ways to invest where you are more remote from that activity. I mean, a lot of uh, investing today, of course, is in passive index funds that yes. are that are you know, where your 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 aim is for diversification, something like that, rather than for, you know, I'm trying to target this particular industry because I really want to, I'm trying to promote gambling in the world. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a different aim. And then, of course, there are also people who invest in, socially responsible uh, mutual funds and things of that sort, right? If that's if, if you really want to stay as far away from anything questionable as possible, you can elect one of those funds. And some of them are designed along Catholic moral principles.
1: And there are quite a few of them these days.
2: Yeah, I don't want to recommend any on the air. No, no, um, no, no, no. You know, specifically, because sometimes, to be honest with you, they don't have—their their investment performance is not, uh, you know—
1: Not what it could not, be. Not what it's advertised as being. Gotcha. Right. All right. I'm glad we could get that question answered. Ryan, thanks for watching us today on YouTube. And Dr. David Anders, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. We do this program on EWTN Radio five days a week, Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Hey, you can check out the podcast anytime. If there was something, maybe you tuned in halfway through the show and you're thinking, what was that first part of that question? check it out by going to the podcast, ewtn.com slash radio, ewtn.com slash radio. Look for the little button that says podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day and God bless.